Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In terms of what you what you drag and what you carry, ancestrally speaking, is absolutely accurate. You don't belong here, man. It's not a feeling. It's a fact. Fact. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome back Stephen Jenkinson for the fourth time on the podcast. And if you're not already familiar with Stephen's work, I recommend checking out episodes 14, 45, and 69 from the archives. For those of you who are familiar with Stephen's work, you'll know that he's a special kind of teacher. And I know that he prefers not to think of himself that way. But my interactions with him always stretch my brain in really productive but often challenging ways and that to me is in essence what it means to be a teacher and this conversation was no different we got together on the occasion of the release of a new book that he collaborated on with kimberly johnson called reckoning and we touch on what brought about that work but the bulk of our conversation centers around Stephen's journey to obtaining a master's in theology from Harvard Divinity School and how that led him to start working as a social worker and eventually to the work he's best known for as a palliative care counselor. Along the way, we hear about his mysterious encounter with an angel at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris following a near-death experience at sea and wonder together about what it means to belong to a place particularly for those of us who are relative newcomers to this land called Turtle Island. As it often happens after speaking with Stephen, 
I'm left with some questions that continue to haunt me. In particular, what it means to belong, and the question that we end with, does Christianity even belong in North America? As usual, it's better not to expect any clear-cut answers from Stephen, but to remain open to having some new questions to consider. Personally, I take the advice of the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, who suggested the following in his letter to the young poet Franz Kappus back in 1903. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Now, please, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Stephen Jenkinson on The Medicine Path. Well, Stephen, um, it's great to see you. You're looking well. Good. Good. I mean, the last month and a half uh, would not suggest that that was an outcome. But uh, if I'm faking it well, then I'm glad about that. Hmm. Uh, you know, whenever I talk to you, I'm always uncertain as to where to begin and also uncertain like where we're going to go. And uh, you're the only person I talk to where I get a little nervous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I like that. I like uh, kind of life. the un unknown with you. Yeah. What brings us together today is it's the occasion of a new book that you're releasing. Yes. Something that you collaborated on with uh, Kimberly Johnson. And it's a document of a series of conversations that you had with her, uh, I think, end of 2021 last year right six seven months ago yeah so it's called reckoning and it certainly seems uh from both sides that it's a document of a reckoning um you know very much you reckoning with the troubled times and in a way her reckoning with this encounter with you yeah which i could relate to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't do it sympathetically. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it was interesting actually for me to read because uh, it reminded me a lot of my own experience and the kind of upheaval that our encounter uh, created for me. Um, I think it was about seven or eight years ago I came to your Orphan Wisdom School on Cortez Island. Yeah. And uh, I was reflecting on how it's so interesting to have a relationship with a teacher or someone I consider an elder at, at a distance, you know, you being a public figure who speaks publicly and, and puts out books and it kind of leads it to be a, in a way, a one-sided relationship, or at least tilted more on one side, because I'm interacting with you more than you're interacting with me. And uh, you know, I got to say, our relationship over the past seven or eight years has had a lot of ups and downs that you're probably not even aware of. <laughs> but like, you're one of the people that I keep coming back to. 
Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about why that is, um, because you've, uh, you know, you've created some trouble in me, uh, or at least maybe help me become aware of pre-existing trouble in me. Well, I've may have you know, con- contributed to it in a minor fashion too. Well, the way I was thinking of it is like what I appreciate about you. And I think this is a rare thing that I've encountered in teachers over the years. And I've had a few, um, it's that you're not offering answers. You're not offering step by step self help programs. What you're doing for me, at least, and I think for other people, is acting as a kind of catalyst that triggers uh, an internal process. That I, the image that came to me was like yeast creating this chemical reaction to uh, make bread. Yeah. So it's like you're not feeding me the bread directly, but you're uh, you're fermenting some kind of process in me, and uh, and what bubbles up is these questions that yeah. uh, I end up living out for many years. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I can't help but think of that Rilke poem where he says it's better to live the questions than to seek answers, and uh, that's very much. Uh, what you've helped me do and you've really helped me appreciate ambivalence. Mm-hmm. So just starting with some appreciation um, for the role that you've played in my life. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever talk to you again. So I want to just voice that. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, foment might be better than ferment I think as a characterization of the event. Yeah. But, you know, there's a couple of things I could say. One is I think I think reassurance is easy to come by. Honestly, it's it's it doesn't stick, but it's certainly on the shelf. And um, I, I don't. It's not that I think it's a cheap or unworthy reassurance. I just think it's it's plentiful. And so, why contribute to the plenitude in that regard? And it really, I got this notion from. Um, it's going to sound like an inverse relationship, but I think you'll see what I mean. So I was in the death trade and it was very clear from the outset that I, that I knew what I was doing and that I didn't belong at the same time. So that's an interesting uh, sort of storm in the night to negotiate. And the storm for me last, I don't know how many years it was, but when it was over, it was truly over. Um, But while I was there, I I glimpsed the fact that, um, you know, dying people needed to be, after all was said and done, obliged to die. That's what it was. Now, they could get reassurance all over the place, and they did. But, um, but the, the, the notion that dying is an obligation, that you were entrusted with more or less at birth, this is, was so uncommon that there was, no, there was no receiver for the signal, you see. So I was... Uh, I was a fool in the in the wilderness, wasn't I? Truly, I don't think much has changed. Um, but I just I drew a bead on um, sort of the mystery that hid in plain view. The thing that became more mysterious the more we learned about it. And um, I think we deserve that to a certain degree from each other. You know, why why in 
insists that mystery is only available in the unfamiliar. And why not occupy a, a, a zone of familiarity and then see what you can do about that allegation of familiarity? And wonder aloud and in so doing, cultivate a different kind of companionship, one that's not relying upon uh, a reduction of the distance between you to, to, con to, to, to have it between you. So I think that's in a roundabout way, that's some of the things that you said, or that's, that's how I recognize myself in your very kind uh, allegations. And I'm glad that, uh, that it's worked out that way because, uh, yeah, you're right. There's a certain degree of one-sidedness, but this is, this is much more common than we would allow. And I'm not sure that it's the public figure aspect so much as it is this, you know, years ago, I abjured the notion that I was a teacher. And ever since then, I've thrown it overboard whenever it shows up. Uh, I haven't been a teacher for the longest time, largely because the gesture of teaching uh, is elsewhere. You're teaching about as if there's a place to get to. And I've always understood myself to be a practitioner who's, who's, who's fulfilling the, the office uh, at the moment, not, I don't need the future. And this is why I don't have a lot of ongoing, let's call them very part-time relationships with a, a lot of people who've, who've very kindly been in touch and, and all the rest. I mean, first of all, I can't, I can't really manage the toilet seat aspect of so many relationships that have so little ongoingness to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we replace the notion of familiarity, I think, with the idea that we can inhabit, relatively speaking, the same place for a while with no serious damage to anything but our, our goofy self-esteem and, and what it relies upon, which is like a, a kind of unquestioned sense of personal mastery. And if we forego that, I mean, mystery is right around the corner waiting for us to appear which I imagine is where we go next. Well, um, I, I just wanted to check in with you and see if there's something maybe you wanted to say about the book that's coming out. Um, if you had any things you wanted to communicate about uh, how it came about and why you decided to transcribe these conversations and put them into book form. Well, now I didn't listen to it. Uh, afterwards, it was all I could do to be in it. But I was assured and then reassured by a number of people from different places that there was genuine merit in being able to revisit what was there, because it was a it was an event that took place in real time. It wasn't a recounting of something that had already taken place. The encounter was, uh, to a certain degree, devastating for for Kimberly. I mean, she wept through much of it. Yeah. And um so much so that when she wrote to Natalie and myself saying as much, thanking us for, for the wreckage, if you will, I suggested right away that we do it again. We you get back on the horse the next night and we make the wreckage the subject of our inquiry, which she was very kind enough to do uh, with no promise that the outcome would be any different or that she would look more masterful as a result. Hmm. And I, th I think she looked... She, her achievements were human, not uh, not in the realm of mastery. And um, um, 
So she was very kind and very generous in her devastation, which is a very uncommon sense of decorum to maintain, I have to say, that she didn't ask me to, to do something about it, to make it otherwise. She didn't ask me to account for it. She didn't overly assume responsibility for it personally, but clearly, you know, she was familiar with the territory of, of the moorings becoming unlashed and unleashed. And, uh, and then she suggested the other five more. So we did seven altogether. But the, the thing in, in some sense I'm as proud of is that um, we took our chances and we concluded the book with um, an exchange of letters. And we wrote them not knowing what the other person was writing or coming or why or what the focus was or no agreement about it at all, uh, which was very much in keeping with how we'd met uh, in the first place. And I just think that, uh, you know, I was very complimented by her bravery. And um, and it made me in some in some sense of the term, it made me look good. And uh, and why not? Um, sign up for that when you can. And the beautiful thing about that is that there was no diminishment involved uh, in, in that outcome. So we were just, as I think I characterized it to her when we were reflecting on it afterwards, <clears throat> I got a message from a young woman, younger woman, no longer young. I myself am an older man, not yet old. That's where we found each other in that place. So it's very much intergenerational and it's, and I agreed to do it because it was the first time I was really able to inhabit that place with someone who had the, the, the stones to do so and was not trying to overcome something, was not trying to be otherwise or ask me to under function in order to engage in all of that. So, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of honor uh, exchanged, I think. And I'm I'm happy that uh, her name and my name are on the same in the same place for a little while. Yeah, well, you touch on something that uh, struck me about it, and one of the things that I appreciated because um, she's got like her own thing going on. Uh, she got a very professional presentation of herself as a teacher and and all of that, but there's uh, an incredible vulnerability that she displayed in that encounter. Like she kind of like let the persona down for a while and uh, was like you said, just human. And um, I appreciated the the bravery of that. And, uh, you know, to not only release the conversations through the podcast, but then to document it as well. Like um, that says a lot to me. Yeah. I didn't know her. As I didn't know her at all, actually, before the the email that that asked for us to you know have a conversation, and I certainly didn't know her in the realm of competence and capacity that she has, and so I wasn't um, interacting with that in any way. I didn't avoid it. I simply wasn't aware about it. You know I, that came later, and this is where my esteem for her actually uh, was enhanced when I began to realize that she had you know, a following and, and, a, and a, a way of doing things and that, and, and her livelihood depended upon it. That's a very risky proposition in this highly polemicized, highly politicized era where, you know, the question, if you will, the, the, the magnetic field of your gender 
uh, becomes uh, just a shit magnet for the most unconscionable uh, entitlements and all the rest that, you know, there's no sense getting into it. But I knew, you know, after the fact that she was opening herself up to extraordinary accusations of, uh, you know, underfunctioning to accommodate me and, and uh, uh, groveling, you know, and on and on and on. And none of those things took place. So yeah. it's just, it's just a wondrous encounter in this day and age that that simply is not required and that people's capacity can stand and it doesn't need its apologetics alongside it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah. what were you going to say? No, I, yeah. And there's something um, about like the, the kind of wellness scene that she's involved in where like upholding that image is so important. Uh, they got that kind of rock solid image of competency and authority and all of that. And I thought because of that, that's kind of where she's placed uh, to let down the guard in that way too, was, uh, was really brave. And I, what I would like to see more of in the whole kind of spiritual marketplace is more humanity and more uh, authentic undoing and uncertainty. Uh, so that, that's important too, I think. I agree. Um, I don't, I don't know what kind of marketplace it remains if people agree to be human for a change. It's not just a change of gear. I mean, it's a radical reassessment of everything that preceded it. Yeah. So, so I don't think the marketplace is, is panting after the chance to become more human. <laughs> yeah, well, that's part of why I think it's really brave is because yeah. uh, you start to show that and I think you lose your followers and your clients and things who are looking for a figure who's just rock solid authority mm-hmm. and, you know, and myself, I mean, doing this podcast for four years, uh, I've told people uh, that I've come to a point of expert exhaustion quite a long time ago and uh, get really tired of the the facade and the persona and the kind of sales pitch. Um, so I'm constantly looking for people who will engage with me on a kind of natural human level of yeah. openness and sharing. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, you know, I wanted to kind of take care of business and talk about that book, but, uh, you know, I could follow up on that, but, um, I kind of take my marching orders from somewhere else, you know, and, uh, I had an idea of what I wanted to maybe talk with you about and wrestling with that versus my kind of obligation to uh, help you with the promotion of the book and everything. And, um, you're kind enough to accommodate me and be open to uh, kind of following where my inquiry was leading. Um, And I woke up this morning uh, thinking about roots. Okay. And I was reflecting on how my people have only been in Canada for about a hundred years. That's uh, four generations. And each one of those generations has moved to a different place. So my family has been very rootless and um, that sense of rootlessness of not knowing where I belong or if I belong here, wherever I find myself has I think probably been my deepest wound or the thing that uh, 
is with me constantly and uh, it's still here with me today. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I wanted to talk with you about roots. Um, like I've been trying to understand how I could find a sense of belonging and how and where to set down roots. Cause as I get older, I feel it more urgently that it's important to be rooted in a place so that when I'm old, I'm not only uh, in a community that I can be of service to, but in a community that can support me. And uh, that's been incredibly difficult. I continually find myself feeling out of place. Yeah. Well, legitimately so. Well, tell me more. I mean, why is that legitimate? It's legitimate because it's, uh, I don't say this in terms of, it's accurate as far as your feeling state goes, which I don't, you know, place a lot of uh, merit in. But it's historically, it's a very accurate rendering of you. Not you personally as, you know, the the unique spark from the forehead of God that you are, but... uh, but in terms of what you what you drag and what you carry, ancestrally speaking, it's absolutely accurate. You don't belong here, man. It's not a feeling. It's a fact. Okay. So this, let me tell a bit of a story to soften the, the, the charge there. So there's a woman named Sharon Butala who's written, who wrote a, a book some, I don't know, 15 years or 20 ago called the silence i think it's called the silence of the morning wow i'm blanking on the title but anyway is she she married into a ranching family in alberta and you know it was a gurgillion acre ranch right that's just an obscenity of a of a holding and uh, she was trotting around on her horse feeling the obligation to get to know the place sound familiar to get to know the place so that she wouldn't feel like such an interloper and such a such a marzipan figure on the cake of this place if you will and so of course she's out there and she finds teepee rings you know circles of stone circles way out in the quote-unquote middle of nowhere she's very excited and she gets the local Cree elders to come out and verify that indeed that's exactly what it is you know medicine circles and all the rest but she's a little dismayed that they're not all worked up about it she thought she'd made a great archaeological and culturally sensitive discovery and they just said oh yeah (laughs) because they knew about it already. Of course, she was the one who didn't know anything about it. And as she's reflecting on that moment of kind of wretched self-observation, she says something in the order of, it was in that moment that I realized that Christianity, that's the one she chose, that Christianity, she said, just doesn't belong here. And she let it stand there as as a fully declared thought with no support so what does that mean though not what does she mean by it but what does the phrase mean we can take out christianity for the moment which i imagine we'll get to in you know due course but but let's just say the notion that her and hers do not belong here that she may as well have said that 
like her her and her family as representatives of Christianity. Yes. Yeah. yes, yeah, they were stand-ins for the moment for all of that. What does belong mean then? Is it a, is it a feeling state? Well, I, I would tempted to say, of course, it's not a feeling state. So etymology is very helpful at a moment like this. And so belong is an actually is a very old Anglo-Saxon or old English word. So it has a it comes from where we come from, if you will. It's a kind of northern European situation, not Mediterranean, not any further east there. And so the B.E. prefix in Old English has the uh, the semantic consequence of intensifying whatever follows it. So it's like it functions as in a way of saying really or or extremely or more so, you know, that's what it does. So it has no inherent meaning in and of itself as a function. And then the root word is the verb to long. Now, I'll go out on a limb and guess that you haven't used the verb to long in an awfully long time. As an adjective much more likely, but as a verb in the first person, understanding and function of the term, it's not very likely. It's extremely uncommon word. Yeah, but it's one that I do use. Okay, so you're I mean, the- Longing you know you're is the a familiar feeling to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> or verb, yeah. Yes, but it's not a feeling, right. is the yeah, thing. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. One way to set it off, is to examine one of its alleged synonyms. People want to belong and they confuse them for being the same thing. But the wanting is an entirely different function from an entirely different place with radically different kinds of consequence. And that's the, the distinction I'd make now. The idea of desire, you know, desire has a remarkable shelf life. I mean, it just lasts and lasts and lasts. It's like the best battery you could buy. And how does it work though? How does it, I mean, but really, even amongst those people who discredit desire entirely, they long, and they, excuse me, they desire the discreditation. And this is, this is the part that escapes them. So desire has the function of doing this. If I can inhabit the desire as a character for a moment, it has a kind of libretto that goes something like this. You know, you know, I want the best for you. And you know, I have you in mind pretty constantly. In fact, you're all I have in mind. And um, I'm looking ahead constantly for what would befit you and befriend you best. So in that sense, we're together. Now, as it happens, I have located the object of your desire. It's not me. I'm the desire. But you know there's an object. You know that the whole way this works is I'm trying to quit. I'm trying to let, you know, make no further claim upon you. I'm trying to, I'm looking for my day of rest over here. And I think if you obtain the object of your desire, then I, as your desire, have no further work to do and am happy to go to the back 40 and dissipate. That's what it says. In other words, what desire is whispering to you over and over again is, I'm just trying to stop, man. I'm just trying to be done. You see, because there's a certain degree of affliction that comes with desire. We all understand that. So we're trying to get on the other side of it by how? By getting to the object of the desire and leaving the desire, if you will, behind in the dust. And of course, like 
even the best Chinese food, you know how it works. The answer is it works for a while. And then what ends up happening is the desire starts to mutter again. And it says something like, not quite what you were bargaining for, was it? She or he or they or it, whatever it is, it's not exactly the way it seemed it was going to be. So after all, my work's not quite done here. Maybe we can just shade things so we, you get the point. Mm-hmm. So it comes back and it comes back and it comes back. But it's a, it's a cover story is quite remarkable. I'm just, I'm just your friend trying to stop. Longing, on the other hand, has virtually the opposite uh, energy about it. Longing's energy seems to me to go something like this. Listen, there's no sense bullshitting around here. I'll never be extinguished. Once you get good at me, I am your companion. I'm not trying to leave you behind. You're not, you wouldn't do well without me, the truth be told. Longing is a kind of, the amazing thing about longing is this. You can be in the presence of what you long for. And if you're good at longing, your longing persists. Not because you're insatiable, but because you realize the nature of longing is not to get on the other side of it, is to be good at it. It has nothing to do with desire whatsoever, because it's not trying to stop. It's a condition of your citizenship, not an interruption in your citizenship. See, so you put the be in front of the verb to long, and what do you get? An intensification of that skill. That's what it is. So belonging is a is a radicalized proposition, right? It's not a consequence of what you seek. Basically, your capacity to belong to a place is a consequence of the place, at the very least, putting up with you and making it fairly clear to you that this is what it's doing and that there's some costliness to you being in that place to that place. And for all of that, it doesn't quite throw you under the bus, even still. Doesn't swallow you up, yeah. Or, or that, yeah. Yeah, I think about um, desire having to do with the future and longing having to do with the past. Yeah, longing is a condition. Desire is a is a, as just as you've said, it's a kind of pitched forwardness. It needs the future, or it's just a taunt. Yeah, there's this uh, Portuguese word saudade and i take it to mean something like you know it's one of those words like sanskrit words or something where you can't really quite translate them into english very well but you can try and the way i understand it is that it's a sense of longing that has in it a sadness because you'll never get that thing that you're aching or longing for and that to me um like, so if I think about this longing I have for a sense of home, it to me feels like some echo from the past, you know, that something my soul knows is possible or suspects is possible or is deluded in thinking is possible. I don't know. But to actually find it, uh, I mean, I don't know. I talk to people all the time and and they too don't feel quite at place where they are. Even the Europeans, you know, who are of that lineage and are in a place where I would think, well, you're in the motherland. Yeah. 
they can still feel that. And then they're flying off to Portugal or South America or Bali, try and find a, their place. Costa Rica. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's not, it's not shocking because one of the things you're registering here that has immense consequence in many places in the world now, it goes by the name of globalization. Globalization is the great dislocator and it will go down in, uh, in, in foreseeable history as the period where we more or less voluntarily rid ourselves of the precondition for belonging in the name of trying to fit in somewhere. No, sorry, I'll say it differently. In the name of, of wanting to be a global citizen, we've, we relinquish our citizenship to any particular place. That's what globalization is in a nutshell. Of course, it has all kinds of market uh, factor issues attached to it, but that's, that's how it works. I was teaching in Bali, and I'm not that proud to say it now, some, I don't know, eight, six or eight years ago. And an elder took me aside, actually literally took me beh back behind the curtain and said something to me that, uh, more or less like this. You know, we don't talk to foreigners about what's happening here for two reasons. First of all, foreigners are very keen on the Bali of old, right? So they're here. And so there's that. But the other reason is it's them. It's them I would talk to them about and their consequence for coming here. See, they're seducing our children. They're not, they're not having any consequence for us at our age, but a massive consequence for our kids. Our kids are embarrassed by our traditions as a direct consequence of people like you coming. But I'm telling you this because some of the things you've said indicate to me that you're aware that this is true. And very few people who look like you seem to be aware of your consequence in this world. So it was a strange kind of recognition and acknowledgement and something like a weird reward system that was in place there. And it was sorrowful. And we were both uh, aggrieved as a consequence because we knew we were probably looking at the last generation in Bali that was willing to be Balinese. Rather than North American or Western, however you want to put it. Just world citizens, you know, with the same access to the same trifling shit from China as everybody else has access to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in kind of um, uncovering my roots, you know, a process which you catalyzed for me when we first met, um, it was the first time I started to consider looking back into my ancestry uh, out of that sense of longing, you know, like, okay, if I'm not from here, where am I from? Who am I from? And inevitably that led to me confronting Christianity. You know, I grew up in a blue collar secular family. Uh, there's no bookshelf, let alone any, kind of spiritual books around, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, my grandparents were very religious people and their Christianity was such a central pillar to their life that it's probably one of the big reasons why I'm even here, like why they could survive the things that they had to survive. And 
so I feel like it's important for me to reckon with that as kind of troubling as it is to reckon with something like Christianity, which has such a, a sordid history, but also glorious history. I mean, it's complicated. And to deal with that complexity rather than just write it off uh, or to embrace it fully. Um, I've been wrestling with it for some years now. And recently I've been having some conversations on the podcast around this uh, to talk to other people who have wrestled with it and um, not looking for any definitive answers because I suspect there isn't one for me at least, but uh, to kind of share in the the wrestling, <laughs> if you will. Um, and I'm wondering like for you, I've never really heard you talk too much about what led you to go to Harvard Divinity School and get a master's in theology. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. I'm curious anyway, like what led you on that journey? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I mean, these things look like they do in hindsight. Do we attribute a degree of cause and effect linkage or, or sorry, you know, beads on a string? That sensibility, that's all a consequence of having come out the ass end of the arrangement and discovered some vague intactness that survived and, uh, and your life ensues, you see. So, I mean, that's not much of a disclaimer, but it's, it, it belongs. So at the time, I mean, I probably grew up in some fashion as you did, uh, that there was no semblance. In fact, I go further and I would say in certain quarters, there was an animosity towards church, churchness, if you will. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't concretize around any particular attribute except the, um, the not devious, what's the word, in, duplicitous qualities that were uh, insinuated into the arrangement, um, you know, around the house. Yeah. So um, I mean, we, we never went, nobody, nobody in the family ever went to anywhere churchy, church wise, but somehow we were imbued with the understanding that, uh, that the matters of the world were too much for people of the cloth. And so that's what I mean by duplicitous. And uh, I didn't really question that much at all. I, I didn't, I wasn't preoccupied by it, but that, that was part of the firmament. 
time goes by. I'm, uh, you know, I don't know, 14 or whatever, somewhere's in there. And I, I come to the same uh, rupturous and irresponsible conclusion that many people do vis-a-vis -vis God, the notion of God, which is a terrible phrase, the notion of God. It's like saying the notion of you, you know. But anyway, and, the, and the, my idea, of course, nothing original about it, was, ah, yes, God, I mean, in the days before screens, it was a screensaver. That's what God is. God is a, is a place saver, if you will, uh, to, to hold open the gap in our, the temporary gap in our understanding. That's what God is, a kind of a, the basement, you know, that you throw everything down in that you don't get. And I was entirely pleased with myself that that was my uh, conclusion. And I came into my uh, my uh, late high school and university years with that ill-considered proposition forefront. So I didn't have, I wasn't very curious, which is a, a really irresponsible position to undertake as a teenager, not to be curious. It's, it should be part of the, the code. It should be part of the job description. But alas, it wasn't the case. So, so there I'm in university, and uh, I take a kind of humanities, a generic humanities enterprise, and I'm in the third year, and I take a course called Jesus and Interpretation. So you can see, by virtue of me signing up, or at least I can see, that some part of me was not entirely pleased with my self-assuredness on all these matters by that time. This would make in third year university, what are you, eight, 19, somewhere's in there. So, you know, right on schedule, the, the, the raft is coming uh, unwoven to a certain extent. No particular crisis involved. Just this is a matter of learning. And I, I held in very high regard the teacher, which is always helpful, right? Because it'll... It'll it'll wage war upon that part of you that would rather not be engaged in this material simply because you hold in high esteem the person from whom it comes. Right. So it's a tremendous crisis, right? When you when you have this dilemma, and I gladly, looking back on it now, had the dilemma. So I went at the end of the year. I went to him. Uh, I, I had a plan that involved a beautiful dancer from Chicago and. Uh, a European sojourn and to discover, you know, all the things that we didn't know about ourselves as, as North Americans. And, uh, and the whole thing fell apart. I got a Dear John letter in the middle of the summer. I went anyway by myself with my heart a cinder and, uh, and met an angel in Notre Dame Cathedral and uh, was barely rescued by the Sicilian Coast Guard. And a rather eventful time it was, as you can tell, and had an immense consequence for my take, my my untested understanding of what life was, what it was for and how it worked and how it was built and what you were responsible to and for and all those fundamental matters that weren't really part of my vague and sentimental education, either, either at university or in the home. Yeah. So by this time, um, nothing was familiar to me any longer. And uh, I went to the, the teacher after this year off, same guy was still there. And uh, I took a course with him on the parables, which lasted a year. And it was just it's just an immense um, upheaving of uh, 
what I thought I held dear. And I couldn't rem maintain my uh, remove from my distance from all of that Bible thing or that believing thing or what. Simply because of the regard I had for the guy, I said to him, how can I keep doing this? Keep studying this stuff. Oh, he said, you can go to graduate school. I said, great. How do I do that? Well, you got to apply. Well, can we do that? We can. And he wrote a sponsoring letter for me. Long story short, somehow I got into Harvard Divinity School. And I thought, honest to God, I thought by that time I was going to, I intended to be a preacher of some description, some clergy person. Now, the irony was, and there's a long story that goes along with this, that I had never been to church. By that day, I had still never been to church. So I'm at Harvard Divinity School. I'm enrolled in the uh, Master of Divinity program. That's that's the white collar gig, right? And yet I've never, I have no idea what it is. I have no idea what congregationalism. I, I don't have a clue. I don't have, I've never darkened the door of the place. So literally it came down to my vocation was being tested by uh, one of the, the uh, faculty people there. And he said, what's the name of your uh, denominational affiliation? And I said to him, I haven't worked that out yet. He said, what's the name of your sponsor and congregation? I said, I haven't worked that out yet either. Son, he said, where do you go to church? I said, I don't go to church. Where did you go to church then? I mean, given what I intended to do, these are reasonable questions to ask. And I said, I didn't go to church. Let me see if I understand the situation, he says to me. You proposed to go into the ministry of something or other, and you had never been to church in your life. I said, that's correct. And he said, well, I never, just like that. And I agreed, I'd never neither. And my clergy career was at an ignominious end before it ever began. And that rupture in what I thought was the self-evident next way to go, probably brought me to the death trade, almost certainly did, and brought me to making a school. Everything I've done, certainly in the last uh, 25 years, probably, none of it was traceable at the time. All of it, I realize now, is a consequence of, of the gravel that was in the road that I thought you just did this and, they did, and this waited for you, and then that, that was the obvious thing to do next and so on. And all of that was gone, and I had to somewhat tread water and somewhat rein, reinvent my understanding of what one foot in front of the other looks like. And that became my life. And I never did go to church, by the way. And, and yet I feel myself um, that the capacity for devotion has been lent to me. Hmm. So I exercise it. What about the encounter with the angel in Notre Dame? I mean, did you tell, tell your supervisor about that? I don't think I did. I might not have had a lot of traction with him no matter what I said. But um, I'm not fully clear, actually. I mean, yeah. was it a beautiful French girl or was it the literal oh. angel of God? Well, I don't know if it was the second one, but that's the best I can come up with. I mean, if you want to hear the story, here it is. So I was working on a on a ship in the Mediterranean and uh, we were all but um, wrecked at sea. Uh, three weeks, was it in something like this? And uh, we were rescued by the Sicilian Coast Guard and promptly arrested and subjected to an Interpol investigation with our passports confiscated and held at machine gun point on the wharf 
That was our situation. I'm like 19 or 20 years old. I have no idea what I've got into here. Hitting pants time. It's very clear there's no way out, you see. And um, anyway, long story short, they couldn't find anything. They were fairly sure we were in the gun or the drug business. And uh, they couldn't find anything. And eventually just threw our uh, passports on the deck in disgust and, uh, and withdrew. And we dispersed. And I never saw virtually any of those people ever again that I was on the boat with. And uh, made my way through Florence and a few other places to Paris, which I have to say, if you're not in perfect working order and you happen to be about 20 years old, Paris is not the best place to be. It's just too old for a North America, an untested North American kid to be in. But that's where I was. And uh, one particular day I was beset by, I don't know, four or five people begging money from me. It's not like I looked like I had any, I should say. I mean, I looked like I'd been through exactly what I'd been through and uh, not very healthy looking. And for some reason, on this particular day, I was getting hit up by all these people for, for spare change, which I had none of. And the thing had the feeling of, of being set upon by a kind of infernal army, honest to God. And so I, I sought refuge in the first building that was close enough. And it was the Notre Dame Cathedral or the former, I should call it now, Notre Dame Cathedral. And I walked in and I sat in the middle and as you may or may not know, there's no fixed pews there, or at least there wasn't at the time, just folding chairs that they move around. So I sat right in the middle, basically seeking some kind of refuge from this onset. And I'm not there 20 seconds, lost in some kind of reverie. I had a sense of where I was, historically speaking. And I can feel a presence coming up my right-hand side, coming down the, the very aisle that I'd just come down, not, you know, 15 or 20 minutes before. And I can still see the guy. And he was about slightly above medium height. And he was dressed in a long black sort of a trench coat or a heavy, heavier weave than trench coat. I can still see the three, the thread bareness at the, at the sleeves. Uh, with an affable look on his face, which was very, which went in very deep, but completely human looking. But he materialized there, basically. And I looked at him and immediately I knew what was going to happen. And you probably can guess it. Same thing. And he said to me, he nodded, but he kept his eyes on me. He just, he nodded and in a way that was both, let's say, merciful and sympathetic, but also weaponized, or at least missionized. And in French, he said to me, uh, is it possible you might have, I think it was two francs or something, whatever. It was, it was nothing. It was under 50 cents, I think. And I said to him in, in mangled, you know, uh, Ontario high school French, something in the order of, you know, it's very unbecoming to beg in a church. And it, it very dismissively, you know, and he, without any change in his expression, he nodded to me to acknowledge everything I said, took one step back. I looked away to signal the final dismissal. And I looked back to make sure he was going. And you know what I'm going to tell you? He was gone. And there was nowhere he could have gone to. He just went. Mm. So I don't know. You call that what you will. 
I mean, I, I think Angel fits it nicely. And and what was the angel's um, message? Because that's what the, the word means in Greek. Mm. Oyangelion means gospel, basically, or or tidings of some description. And I think what he was doing was he, he was teaching me something about citizenship, about presence in the world, about the notion of of uh, one's fellows, something in this order, you know, which I clearly had absolutely no capacity for. Mm. And it was a very rough teaching, although, I mean, considering what kind of pyrotechnics could have ensued, given the origin of this character, I mean, there were none. It was just a very quiet encounter with my limitations mm. in the middle of Notre Dame Cathedral. So it's not a bad place to be um, divested of your certainties. Mm. Yeah. yeah. In terms of message, what just popped up for me was um, that bit from a Rumi poem where he says, even if you haven't been fed, be bread. Yeah. Something about generosity and um, that Christian charity in there. Something about generosity, which I had none of. Well, kind of remarkable that uh, after, you know, <laughs> figuring out that you weren't on that path to get the white collar, you ended up going into social work. Right. Well, social work is the kind of uh, desecrated uh clergyhood yeah that's what it is it's, I mean, it's just it's you just don't have the, the the marching orders but you have many of the same senses of vocation and calling and you know obligation and and that you've been exhorted somehow to undertake something that you can't quite articulate and all, all, yeah i think there's some overlap just like when i ended up in the death trade uh, the most recognizable kin for me were midwives. And we often used to swap, you know, battle stories or war stories. Uh, and we recognize each other almost instantly that we're in the same work. So, yes, I think there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a different kind of white collar. It's like a button down white collar, maybe in the social work trade. Maybe. <laughs> Too glib, maybe. But uh I just think that's remarkable. I mean, were you aware of that when you chose to then go get your master's in social work and pursue that? Well, the, the social work thing was nothing very vainglorious about it. It was a, a matter of me simply being unable to translate having a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School into anything that was marketable. That's the God's truth of it. Now, that's the, that's the terrestrial outfitting of the dilemma. The... The rest of the story clearly is that I had a certain sequence of obligations that were attached to whatever my proclivities and abilities were. And I was showing no indication of cultivating them on my own steam. Mm. And so I was being shunted. I mean, I can very clearly see it now, but at the time I, I had no sense of direction. I was thrashing about basically because I couldn't get I couldn't get work, uh, largely because the accreditation intimidated people that I was being interviewed by. And so, you know, I, I, I no amount of underfunctioning accommodated them. So it, it was an awful time in a sense. And um, and the, the social work degree was simply, you know, 
45 seconds after I graduated, I had like eight job offers. So it was clearly at some level, the right move. Good move. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good move. Yeah. Good way to be of service. Yeah. Almost instantaneously. Yes. Not effectively, but instantly. Yes. Right. Sure. Yeah. Take some, uh, take some years on the job to get good at it and to be truly of service. Right. Yeah. So is that um, is that when you got interested in psychology? No, I don't think I was ever interested in psychology. Really? Because you know um, quite a bit about it. <laughs> I do. Well, you know, what do they say? Keep your friends closer and your enemies closer. Right. <laughs> so I would say I'm an adversary of things psychological. Yeah. Really? I'll give you an example. Since we're talking about me here more than I'm accustomed to. Very recently, I've been contacted by representatives of a certain band council from one of the uh, indigenous uh, tribal communities, um, not, not too far, within hours from where I'm sitting talking to you. And they've received a considerable amount of funding to investigate uh, the possibility of uncovering graves in the site of the old residential school. Very it's all happening now, eh? properly, properly, well, proper that it's happening at all. But, and so, uh, and the, the reason they're calling me is because will I work with the, uh, the survivors? Mm. And they're using all the language, as you'd expect. And all the language is what comes from where? From indigenous medicine circles? Not on your life, my friend. All the language is psychological. Now, they don't quite know that. But it's very clear that that's where it's coming from. So after I hear out the pitch, I say very gently, uh, the last thing you need is somebody else coming from the outside, taking a portion of the money allotted to you for this project, appearing to try to be of some nominal um, Novocaine assistance, you know, in the very short term, and then walking. That's the last thing you need. So I'm not going to do it. The only thing I'd agree to even consider doing is democratizing the wisdom around grief that is properly your birthright. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can participate in that, but I'm only going to do it with the people who are in for the long haul in terms of serving their community on this matter. You decide who that is and I'm your guy. So we'll see what we'll see where it goes, but they were very excited to hear the prospect that I was interested in in growing the, the capacity. Uh, the, the connection with psychology is this. I said to her as we were talking about it, listen, you know, you're constantly using the language of body, mind, and spirit, all this kind of stuff, as if it's, quote, traditional stuff for you guys. But I got to tell you something. That's another way in which you're being colonized. Okay? Yeah. It's exactly the way your people, I'm talking to you now, were colonized at the point of a sword or otherwise when forced conversion came to call in your part of the world ancestrally. It's exactly how it happened. It's, it follows a rather tired and predictable course. But it's interesting. I mean, there is a relationship kind of symbolically between the sword and the word. I mean, there's that great Christian image of uh, Christ with the sword coming out of his mouth. And so the colonization may have happened at the tip of a literal sword back then, but now it's happening with 
the language and particularly the language of psychology and, and trauma work. And I'm sure you heard a lot about, can you help us through the processing, the stages of grief and all of that stuff, right? Exactly right. And I said to her, listen, you and I both know that the word reconciliation is a big deal now, very big deal. And you're waiting for it to happen. You're waiting for Ottawa to come through and the rest. You can wait if you want to. But here's what I have to say about it. There is no reconciliation available to you or to me in my side of this great divide or your side, because it pres- the word itself presumes that something happened already. And all you're going to try to do is reinstate it. The word reconcile means there was some kind of conciliation as the primordial condition that never happened. Conciliation is what needs to happen. Correct. And that's what I propose to do. Mm. Yeah. Now, God, I know the way this country works and the way funding works in this country. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they're going to be kind of pushed to find somebody who will, you know, uh, do the dance. You know what I mean? I do. And the answer is probably maybe. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not worried about it. I think I could do a reasonable job of failing to comply if the opportunity presents itself. But at the very least, I took the the moment of engagement as the opportunity to plant some kind of disheveling seed, you see. Now, somebody could say, the last thing these people need is more dishevelment from the likes of you. It's not an easy case to make against that point. I understand, it's true. But if, if it's bad enough by now, I don't know if it is, But if it's bad enough, maybe we're in the place where where some consequence can happen structurally as far as the expectations go. And if if you got a white guy in the middle of the arrangement who refuses to use the language of psychology and 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 uh, trauma, as you say, and uh, uh, healing and all this kind of stuff as if it were pseudo traditional stuff just refuses outright. Well, you better have a capacity with the language if you're gonna abjure all that stuff. And I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, I do have that capacity. And I lived long enough, I lived long enough to have some qualification to bring to bear upon the situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I I can do is, is be ready. Yeah. And I kind of like, you know, thank God that they came to you with that proposition because you're probably one of the few people that wouldn't grasp at that opportunity because, man, I mean, that's great PR for the grief walker, dude. Sure. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's true. Right? I, I never thought of that. No. Like, you're terrible at marketing, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's right up there. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, this will not appear anywhere if it comes through. It, you know, I'm... I'm not going to write about it or, or really, no, no, because it belongs to the people who've asked me to do it. That's yeah. what I said. Yeah. I said, I'm going to leave it all there. I, and I mean it. The only reason I'm talking about it now is because it hasn't happened, yeah. but if it does, I won't talk about it at all. Sure. I, I, no, I understand that. But even that part that you just uh, recounted, I think uh, is very instructional. And I think, 
you know, maybe even writing about that uh, could help shift things for a lot of people, you know, who are like, you know, people who look like us, like you like to say, you know, people who look like us, whose minds have been colonized. So they can't even see it when they're doing it to others. It's true. It's true. It's one of the reasons I do this, the Orphan Wisdom School, the way I do it. You, you simply can't engage in an ongoing discreditation of the people who've come, who've paid to come and be with you. This is just, it's just beneath everyone. Okay. But at the same time, how then do you make room for the, the deep um, transgressiveness that you are properly, I mean, in the sense of accurately heir to? How do you do it? Well, the last thing you do is start banging on about people's privilege. No, that's the last thing you do. The last thing you do is traffic in guilt as if it were synonymous with conscience. People engage in guilt so as not to have to have a conscience. A conscience is an enabling proposition. Guilt, on the other hand. So it's everything down. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I wonder if you could, well, I one, wonder, one, more yes. th- one more thing, and maybe this drags us a little bit in the direction that you had indicated you might want to go. I wanted to drag us back a couple steps, but go ahead. Okay. So I was teaching at the Young Institute in Geneva, Switzerland, some years ago, very briefly. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I didn't belong there either. And they knew it right away. <laughs> so anyway... So I'm there and a couple of uh, Germans were had, had sort of come around and were kind of interested. And we ended up in the same restaurant and English was not a problem for them, thankfully. And so we were talking and, and I don't know what something prompted me. And I, I simply asked them whether or not the second world, given their age, and they were at the time in their late 30s, say, whether or not the Second World War and its various details appeared in their curriculum at school uh, when they were young kids. And somebody kicked me under the table. How could you ask them that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'm mentioning this to say this. It can't be easy. No, it no, it, it utterly cannot be easy to live cheek by jowl with recent history that's documented and and global in its consequence and enduring all at the same time. It can't be easy because literally one of the things that is most caustic in the arrangement is that you are the true blood-born grandson or granddaughter of that stuff. So, So how do you occupy the 21st century? given all this, how do, who are you? And what might be your relationship properly understood to your ancestry? Oh, well, you can imagine one of the first instincts would be to disavow anything that preceded you, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't me. And then the second thing, you, second thing you do is disavow anything Germanic, I suppose, anything that's vaguely culturally reminiscent of that passed through that time period any grandiosity, anyway, on and on and on. What I'm saying is this. If you have in your ancestry uh, finally stumbled across the, the clear fact that you have as many bad guys 
at least in your family line, as you have good guys, if I could just put it simply that way. And so then the question becomes simply this, given that there's little or no tutelage amongst us in North America as to what our lived responsibility might be to our ancestry, still in all, to whom do you think you might owe what? And I promise you this, the consequence of glomming onto your good ancestors is considerable, but it's nothing on glomming onto someone else's ancestors, which the likes of you and I in our appearance are doing every day, up and down every coast in these Americas, glomming onto somebody else's more funky cafe au lait ancestry as a way of getting away from our own. What do you think the consequence might be for doing of doing so for your own psychic life in the present one, but much more importantly, if there's such a thing as living ancestry, which I suspect there is, then there's living consequence. What do you think the consequence is of throwing your own undesired ancestry under the bus in the name of copying somebody else's? Okay, so in other words, this compounds as well as confounds all of these dark, unclaimed, uh, ancestral aspects, they are actually multiplied by the current regime's desire, you know, to purify yourself retroactively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's at the heart of it for me with this reckoning with Christianity um, is because, you know, in this um, kind of spiritual scene, let's call it, I don't know how else to categorize it, but you know what I mean. There's a lot of talk about doing ancestor work among people who look like me and you, <laughs> kind of these displaced Europeans. Um, and I've investigated that a little bit. I was quickly turned off by it because they were immediately jumping over recent ancestry and trying to get back to some kind of pagan fantasy and maybe not even a pagan fantasy imagined by their European ancestors, but going back to something that comes from Africa or somewhere else. Yeah. And I just found that to be incredibly disrespectful to the, those more recent ancestors uh, to not at least as an adult do an adult reckoning with this problematic Christianity that was such a central pillar to their lives. And like I said, probably one of the reasons why you have the life that you do, that you even have a life at all. And so I've been trying to do what I think is to me an obligation and um, really kind of struggling with it and trying to understand what, if any place, Christianity has in, in my life now as someone who didn't really grow up with it? I mean, it's kind of, it's, in a way, it's like the water you swim in. I mean, it's kind of there if you know what to look for and you see how Christianity has informed our society. Yeah. Um, but it, it hasn't been easy because I feel like naturally I'm something more like a polytheist or a or a pagan. Um, and so if I embrace uh, Christ, which I, which I do, because I've had these 
very strange encounters with him in the most unlikely of places. You know, I've, I've talked on this podcast about going down to the jungles of Peru to drink ayahuasca and not encountering uh, the goddess ayahuasca, the mother ayahuasca, but encountering Jesus Christ, or at least some force that I associate with him. And that was completely unexpected and uh, not something I was looking for because it didn't make my life any easier. (laughs) Sure. But it made it all the more real um, because it's not something I could, uh, I could uh, disregard, you know? And so I've been struggling with it and I'm curious to hear from you about this. I mean, you said Christianity has no place in this country. No, I didn't say that. I was quoting I was quoting a woman, but obviously I'm agreeing with her. The yeah. quote was Christianity doesn't belong here. Right. Okay. There's no should implied in that. Could you say more about that? Christianity sure. does, doesn't belong here, sure. Canada. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Christian to do this, to come to it, and I won't revisit what we talked about, you have to come to an understanding of what it means to belong. Right? Belonging is not a kind of chosen affiliation like your favorite sports team. I mean, that's, it's just not what it is, right? Belonging is being claimed much more than it's claiming. Okay, so this land, I don't think recognizes us. Largely because we are, we are caught in a, in a strange recurrent web of dissociative acts vis-a-vis the, the facticity of the land, see, a suburb would be a good example. Mm-hmm. I was just writing about this this morning for a possible book about uh, agriculture and, and grief, basically. And, uh, you know, one of the things that occurs to me over and over again is if you don't have something like food sovereignty, then your relationship with the food producers in your country uh, is, is disfigured. And you end up um, fantasizing about them uh, in, in, as alongside, since you're not really relying upon them, you're relying upon the Chinese mega farms. I mean, it's already the case. You can't buy any, anyway, sorry, not, not, it's, too, it's too deep a well to go into. So, so Christianity then, if it doesn't belong here means what? It means it's not from here. It's an Eastern European Semitic religion with a, with a heavy, dose of Hellenic mystery religions to go along with it. That's what it is. Okay. And the fact that it loosened itself from all conceivable cultural moorings to turn into the missionizing force that it did is simply an indication of it took, it took a malady and turned it into an attribute. The malady was, it was homeless. It had no real place in Jerusalem. It had no real place in in uh, quote unquote the Holy Land, and so it went set about recasting itself as uh, the refuge of the non-aligned, and that's exactly what it became. The interesting dynamic, though, was the only way you could join Christianity is that you had to forsake your alignments. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's there's the it just kept doing this. It's exclusively almost for the non-aligned, a kind of refuge. And at the same time, it obliges you to be non-aligned yeah. mm-hmm. as a condition for entry. Yeah. And that's basically what the soul became. The notion of the soul, which was borrowed from Greek mystery religions, 
largely. The notion of the soul, to my understanding, goes something like this. So God loves you. Okay, let's be clear. But God doesn't love everything about you because everything about you is not lovable. And interestingly enough, all the things that are fixed in place and time in terms of your affiliations are the stuff that God's not that wild about. However, there is a part of you that's it's just magic time when it comes to you and God. And that would be your soul. Now, your soul, no matter what color your skin is, your soul's not that color. No matter what language you talk, your soul doesn't talk that color. Excuse me, doesn't speak that language. No matter what food you're drawn to and the rest and all down the line. So, so the soul, by definition, is your homelessness incarnate. And the irony is they turn that into the, the singular thing that binds you to God and to the kingdom of God. So you have to forsake, among other things, your lived relationship with your predecessors as a consequence of saving your soul. And this becomes, frankly, a cost that's too high to be borne. And yet modernity is the ba unclaimed bastard child of that expense. That's where it comes from. It's interesting because um, some of the kind of current postmodern ideologies want to disavow language, for instance, English language. English language is oppressive. It's a colonial language, um, all of that. Yeah. And in that, though, it's kind of that Christian act of forsaking or disavowing your parents, I think is like Christ edict, right? Like, so ironically, they're kind of playing out that Christian pattern of creating a homelessness for themselves uh, by cutting off all ties to anything that came before. Or you could say it slightly, you know, to it, to preserve the irony of the arrangement, you could say, to make a home in the crater called homelessness. Ooh, yeah. That's where you put your little pup tent of personal salvation. And this is why it's always personal, personal Jesus, right? Personal relationship with the Lord, all of that. It's got to be personal. Why? Well, because, because conversion didn't work at the level of the family or the, or the clan or the tribe. It didn't work. It only worked at the level of the individual. And so the, it's very clear that the, the moral arrangement of most missionaries was to corrupt the extended notion of the extended family and the notion of the lived relationship to the dead. That's where they went time after time after time. And if you can plant the seed of fundamental doubt in the legitimacy of the, either one of those two things, you, you are beginning to craft another generation of homeless people. Yeah. And that's something um, that you know, I've read other people write about was how the coming of Christianity brought along or um, kind of planted the seeds for the individuality uh, that has continued to become more and more and more atomized through the centuries since mm -hmm. to the point now where, you know, in my generation, it was the nuclear family. Um, now, we don't even have that. The nuclear family's yeah. broken apart, and now it's all about the individual. The, we hear over and over in the kind of spiritual wellness world the importance of sovereignty, right. of identity, 
of my truth and all the rest of it. And what do you think is the next logical conclusion to this or the progression of this? I mean, then we're at nothingness at a certain point where you have to give up the individual and then we're in what? Enlightenment? Well, I, I no honestly, self? Yeah. I'm, I'm probably going to have to end with this answer now because um, yeah. it is a farm, a working farm, and I have my obligations. But um, I suspect where it goes subsequent to the arrangement that you've described is something like this. There is no self. There is no anything. There's nothing to belong to. There is no alignment. These are all illusions. Okay. And the only thing that's not an illusion is the omnipresence of illusion. Illusion you can count on, in other words. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I suspect it goes, it, it becomes nihilistic, you know, not that that's not already there in some fashion, but I think it becomes probably uh, dogmatized and um, schematized and so on. Yes, yeah, so that there, there's schemes for non-existence, you know, and... Uh, Ooh. Yeah, I just had a flash of like virtual reality and yeah, of course, uh, this know, is what I'm saying. And everything, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Not only do you not need other people, but you don't need you. What you do need is the visor mm-hmm. and the so avatar. Yeah, we fundamentally now um, have a kind of ocul uh, uh, a kind of what's the word I need? We have a degeneration of the capacity to inhabit. We can own, but we're not very good at inhabiting. And then we make a habit of our disability and call it an attribute, living lightly, right? Being able to move with no particular remorse from one cultural fixation to the next and taste and try everything that's on you understand what i'm saying yeah the i mean it's uh it's such a trend now with younger people it's uh to be a digital nomad in in nihilistic neoprene mm. oh yeah oh yeah i've got a piece that i did with a for a swedish filmmaker called still i think it's on youtube they tell me it's on youtube i haven't seen it um have a listen to that if you want. It's a, it's a meditation on allegedly on stillness. But this it ends with this very consideration about digital nomadism and, and, uh, and the cost of trying to be still. The notion that if you eliminate distraction, by definition, you end up with stillness. And stillness is the prerequisite for clarity. And clarity is the prerequisite for, you know, right behavior. And... I mean, it's very clear in monastic life, for example, that they replace all the things you eschew when you leave the world with a a kind of ruthless degree of order. Why? Because it's very clear to the people who've actually tried it that you can't live a disorganized religion. You can't survive the encounter with an organization, excuse me, with a religion of disorganizedness. Right? Yeah. So, so one of the recurrent, not recurring, one of the mantras that appears in the middle of the meditation is something like this. So you, so you ask for clarity and you get it and it's too much. And so you pray for mercy instead and you get it 
and it's not enough. And so you pray for clarity instead and you get it and it's too much. And there's the, there's the cycle, yeah? Mm. Listen, I, I don't want to end this by indicating that this is my, the sum total of my take on the near future. But uh, I mean, you know, we're trying to conduct ourselves as responsible citizens here, you know, with having a responsibility to the mind that we've been granted and to whatever skills with the language that we've been granted. And uh, so it behooves us to make sure, I think, that the condition of the world in, the, in its present moment, in our corner of it, is recognizable in what we're talking about. This doesn't forsake and foreclose upon all the possibilities, just most of them. Mm. Or that we're recognizable to this corner of the world. Well, long term, that would be something. Mm. If our corner of the world finally had a good long look at us and said, you'll do. <laughs> For now. That would be a pretty that would be a pretty good outcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Now that's something to aspire to. Yes. And it feels more like it requires a, a removing or a, to use a Christian term, a kenosis and emptying out. Well, perhaps so. That sounds a little sort of bulimic anorexic to me, to be honest. <laughs> well, maybe you got to purge a bit before you can take in some good stuff. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not really persuaded on 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 the, the mechanics of that. But but you know, the the land has to become something that is that we experience as as friendly, more than benign friendly. But the only time we're going to get anywhere close to that encounter is we're gonna to have to come to a, a wretched understanding of the predisposition, the kind of feeling and, and, and epistemological habits that we drag around that answer the question, so how do things like typically go? Or what do you mean by natural? Or what's your understanding of what constitutes the inevitable? Just the next kind of thing, that kind of stuff comes from the very much comes from the stuff we've been talking about biblically. So even if you're not a biblically oriented person, the sense of primordial trespass and indebtedness that ensues and the subsequent alienation from the place that would otherwise sustain and nourish you is very recognizable. So, you know, your personal belief systems, frankly, on the irrelevant side of things, because you're more an heir, a reluctant or un, an heir unawares to yourself of these primordial stories, you know, and you, you don't need Noah and you don't, and to make, to find yourself and your habits in, you know, this is too easy to dismiss. Well, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. Well, but that kind of stuff clearly believes in you, clearly believes in you. Because it persists in your disbelief. Mm. You see, so you're not clean as a consequence of washing your hands of it. So that goes to the question of ancestry that we were talking about earlier and belonging. And it might be the beginnings of a precondition for being a citizen of a country in which an Eastern Mediterranean religion simply doesn't belong. There's no should. Let's see if we have the courage to understand 
that are the fundament of our ontological habit doesn't come from here. And this is why we can't basically rarely, if ever, be able to inhabit the same room at the same time as an indigenous person. This is exactly why, because we don't have the ability to do so, because we can't belong here yet. But I'm not foreclosing the possibility that with enough work and enough, you know, fessing up, enough conciliation, maybe, maybe ultimately we become grudgingly sons and daughters of this place, not grudgingly on our side, that the that this corner of the world says, as I said, well, perhaps you'll do. You're as good as it's going to get, so let's give you a try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, man, I'm sorry. I have to go. Yeah. I know it's a little unceremonious, but there it is. The no, sheep awaken. Yeah. All right. So take care until next time. You too. Th- thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.